This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hello, I'm Carl Pillemer. I am the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, and I'd like to welcome you to the next installment of our podcast series, Doing Translational Research, in which we talk to people who are trying to create a better marriage between science and service in their work. I'm talking today with Dana Weiner, who is a policy fellow at Chapin Hall at the University of Chicago. Trained as a clinical psychologist at Northwestern University, she actually has a BS in human development family studies from our own university, Cornell, so we're proud of that. And she's done a lot of work in child welfare, juvenile justice, evidence-based practice, and data-driven policy decision-making, which is something she'll be talking about here later on at the Bronfenbrenner Center. So welcome to our podcast series. Thank you. I'd like to begin just by asking you to tell us a little bit about your main sort of research and policy-related interest. Another way to think about this is what are maybe some of the major research questions that your work attempts to answer? Mm-hmm. So... As, as you explained, I'm a policy fellow at Chapin Hall, and in that role, I travel around the country and provide analytic consultation to child welfare jurisdictions, so to help child welfare systems to use their data to do better for the children and families they serve. And in doing that, I try to take a developmental approach, that is, to meet people where they're at. Some systems have very basic questions. They want to know where, how they're doing relative to other systems across the country, And other places have very sophisticated questions, and they may want predictive analytics or latent class analysis. They may ask for a specific thing or have a specific question that has kind of a complicated answer. Similarly, some systems have loads and loads of data to work with, which gives us the luxury of posing some of those more complex questions. And other systems um, have very basic information. So we, we try to meet people where they're at, both in terms of their inquiry and the capacity they have to do research. That is really interesting. And so you will go into XYZ State, look at the data they have, and consult with them about how to use it? Or how does that actually work? Usually it starts with a question. Or if it doesn't start with a question, we try to encourage people to articulate their questions. Um, A lot of times uh, systems and, and leaders take for granted that both their the things they want to know, as well as what I would call their theories of change, their ideas about what they should do about a particular problem. A lot of times these systems take for granted that everybody understands why they're doing what they're doing. But in order to evaluate it or to structure a research inquiry, we really need for them to spell out what do they think the problem is, what are the strategies they're using to try to address it, and what do they think is going to happen as a result. Because I I think too often systems end up focused on the larger, what we call the distal outcome, the big picture outcome. And so when things don't work, we don't have the ability to then parse it and look at whether the steps along the way were accomplished. Um, I love it when someone is excited about data. Unfortunately, that's something our listeners are interested in too. But I, but if I'm correct, you don't collect new data. You use their existing administrative data sources or, for, to answer these questions? In most cases, yes. We use their existing administrative data sources. Now, At Chapin Hall, we also are the repository for a number of different um, systems data, so it depends on the place. 
Illinois data, for instance, we have a great deal of information um, about child welfare and other human services. And um, so there, there are a couple of other data resources that we have, but most of the time, under a data sharing agreement, we actually use the administrative data from the jurisdiction. Um, and there's a lot involved with the responsible use of administrative data. This is, I would say that the kind of research we're doing differs from traditional academic research in a number of ways. One is that the research interests are completely aligned with these systems. We're, we're not pursuing research questions independent of what these systems need to know. Um, but the other is that we're not taking their administrative data, performing an analysis, and then giving it back to them and saying, here's what we found. It's a collaborative and iterative process. So that we need their help to make meaning of what we find. We also need their help to make sure we're using their data responsibly. Sometimes we are working with internal stakeholders in a system and we learn that a particular uh, data entry field is not used the way we thought it was used. And you wouldn't know those things unless you were working collaboratively. Um, and do you or your colleagues also use these for academic publications, or is it purely to assist the states in either decision-making or evaluation? So the first priority is to, is to assist the states or counties in some cases, or other nonprofits in other cases. Um, however, those those projects have resulted in collaborations, very fruitful collaborations, between academic researchers and system actors, practitioners, leaders. So, for instance, I presented last summer at the NCAN conference with my colleague Brian Click, who's the deputy director within the New York City Child Welfare System. We presented together about our collaborative approach to using predictive analytics in child welfare. So, um, and NCAN, to clarify, is a national... Oh, the National Conference on Child Abuse and Neglect. Sounds close enough yes. or commit or commit. Yes. I can never remember, but yes, but it's a national child yes. abuse and neglect. Um, what, yeah, I think uh, we're living in a time where people seem to be increasingly suspicious of data, mm-hmm. perhaps even not wanting to know uh, the results of what it has uh, to tell us. So do you find in working with states that... Uh, or with counties or other entities, that, that there's an issue in either coming up with findings that are unwelcome to the stakeholders or um, having to negotiate around how findings are presented or how data are used? That's an interesting question, and I could kind of answer it in two ways. Um, one, I think um, in every system we do encounter people who are suspicious of the data. They have a variety of different concerns. Sometimes their concerns are that using administrative data may perpetuate institutional bias. That is that because we know that some of our systems make biased decisions, if we use the data that come out of those systems, particularly the data about the decisions that have been made, that we run the risk going forward of institutionalizing those biases, perpetuating them. Um, And there are some there are some sophisticated ways that we're trying to address that issue. Certainly speaking openly with people about their concerns, letting them know what goes into our predictive models, having transparency about that um, is really important to facilitate those discussions. Um, I think when the mistrust of the data comes from real concerns about where the source of the data, those are things we need to pay attention to also. So those would be systems where people say, 
well, you're using th these data on allegations of child abuse and neglect, but we know that people don't enter those consistently, or they routinely default to this particular code, even though that's not really what the situation calls for. Now, in those cases, that's really important information. That's why we behave collaboratively as we do, because we need to know which data we can rely on and which we can't. Um, I, I think more broadly, I would say that I think the general public sometimes is mistrustful of research findings because they so often seem to contradict each other. And I, I teach a class at the School of Social Service Administration at the University of Chicago where I'm really trying to um, grow a, a cohort of educated consumers of research and data who understand the difference between an epidemiological study that might tell you one thing about lifestyle characteristics that are related to better outcomes and a randomized controlled trial that might contradict the findings of that epidemiological study because it's a different type of research that's designed to tell you a different thing um, and test a different kind of hypothesis. So, so I think the answer to that is engaging more people in the conversation and, and doing what a lot of my job is, which is translating research and data into a, something that people can really understand. Yeah, that's such a, such a critical issue and really important. Let me ask, you've mentioned a couple times predictive. How would, what would be predictive about, or, or let, let, me, let me word that differently, how would you use, say, state-level or county-level data in these predictive models? Is mm -hmm. it to predict outcomes of clients or to... Yeah, so most often the kind of question we get that leads us to engage in predictive analytics are questions about negative outcomes that we would like to avoid, that we think if we intervened early or more intensively, we could prevent. So, for example, um, there, there is a, a, tre a, a trend underway to reduce our reliance on congregate care for youth who are involved in child welfare. That is, that children who are removed from their families should be placed in a home environment whenever possible and that we should only reserve... Um, congregate care or residential treatment for really high-end and acute uh, clinical needs. So, um, in Illinois in particular, we've used predictive analytics to try to understand what are the characteristics of kids when we first meet them at their initial assessment that relate to their eventual placement in a residential treatment setting. If we knew earlier we could design interventions that might be home-based that would address some of their clinical needs and divert them or alleviate the need for residential treatment. And we've had, that example is one in which we actually we ran predictive models, and then we used those predictive models to develop an RFP, a request for proposals for therapeutic foster care. So we used the analytic models, translated them into eligibility criteria for the program, service offerings that providers would have to offer as part of the alternative to residential and capacity estimates for where in the state we needed to have more of these resources. So that, that's actually an example of something that where the predictive models literally got translated into a, a practice implication. It's perfect because you answered my next question, which was what's an example that work, and that's really, really helpful. Um, let me ask, in terms of the actual interactions with people in these agencies or with people to whom you present the data, uh, one of the things we try to touch on in this podcast is we're trying to encourage translational research um, and help people to overcome potential pitfalls. Mm -hmm. um, you know, do you have any either challenges you've encountered or, you know, you, you, I think you've touched on a few, but strategies that have been successful in 
in uh, working with people, sort of busy agency staff who are uh, perhaps not as familiar with, you know, data and what they can do, either problems you've encountered or hmm. um, successes you've had? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I most of my advice would be advice for researchers on how to kind of heighten the relevance of their work for those system actors. Most of the people in those agencies that I come into contact with are seeking some analytic consultation. Um, so I'm not, I don't often have to sell them on it because they need the help. But, um, but my observation is that there is a lot of misalignment where, um, as researchers, we are pursuing things um, guided by some other set of priorities other than what is actually relevant to those, um, to those systems. Yeah, no, I think that that's really important. Yeah, we, um, in my own work, I've had to deal with um, adult protective services data, for example, often where the data quality is poor and there are stakeholders who are really invested in the outcome of what we might report. And so for us, it often takes a lot of developmental work with them, but you have a great advantage in that people are coming to you for this kind of assistance. Yeah, I, I mean, I will also say that there... At, as a researcher working with those systems, you are acting under a different set of constraints. So whereas traditionally research kind of follows a process and you work along at a particular pace, in these systems sometimes if you want the work to, ultimate, to have traction and to ultimately have an impact, you sometimes have to um, cal- recalibrate the pace of your research to the things that are going on in those systems. So, for example, we were working on one of these predictive analytics exercises. We were moving along on our time frame, and the people in the system we were working with had the attention of the mayor and some other leaders who were really enthusiastic about hearing what we were learning. Now, if we had our druthers, we would have probably waited three to six more months until we had kind of a more processed, synthesized version of what we wanted to deliver. At that point, we might not have had the attention of the people who might do something about it. So we're always having to find a compromise that doesn't compromise the methodological rigor of what we're doing and doesn't call it finished when it's not finished, but yet delivers something to people to maintain their enthusiasm and their attention so that they, they understand the importance and the value of what we're doing but that we can continue to do the work as it needs to be done. So, you know, that's just one example, but it does require quite a bit of flexibility on the part of the researcher. Um, Also, also I I would just add patience with the fact that these systems often are not, they, they lack agility. So they can't, it takes a long time, even once the research is in their hands, it takes a long time to actually change some of the things that are already underway. You know, I think that is such an incredibly important point about the difference in timing and schedules. If there's sort of a two cultures of people doing research and people actually doing things in the real world, the accelerated need for information is, is huge. I, oh boy, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, let me ask, uh, as you think about your, you know, the whole area in which you're doing research or in, in terms of child welfare and related issues, um, what's something or one or two things that, that you might like uh, the general public to know about the, the, what you've learned in your work? Are there a couple of things that, that might be of importance to, quote, ordinary citizens, unquote, if that's even a meaningful category? 
Yeah. Um, so, in my experience, it seems that it is much, um, and this, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you or anyone listening, that it's um, cheaper and much more efficient to prevent problems than it is to remediate them. Yet, the incentives in our current system, whether it be because of the way our political system works or, um, or our, the cycles of legislative sessions, we tend to not prioritize the solutions to problems that are coming down the road, which you know about if you have your eyes on the data. We tend to look at the things that are right in front of us and because we don't tend to give people credit for preventing problems that don't occur, we oftentimes um, wait until the problems are so entrenched that it takes a lot more to try to unravel and solve them. So it, I would say my advice would be to prioritize prevention. That's, that's, I think that sounds absolutely right. And this relates maybe to my last question, and maybe you've already answered it, but let me throw it out anyway. Um, if there were, based on all this, you know, the other work you've done over 20 years or so, if there was a real-world change that you would like to affect based on it, is there anything that comes to mind of one, you know, actual change in either policy or practice that, that has emerged from this work that you've been doing? Hmm. I, I mean, my answer probably would dovetail with the answer I gave to your last question, which is I, I would love to see more of a focus um, on prevention, and also, as it relates specifically to child welfare, on strengthening the families and the communities that get involved with these systems, because the child welfare system doesn't function effectively raising kids. The child welfare system could be a resource for providing families with the things they need to take care of their children, and so it goes along with the prevention message, but I think that's the change I would want to see. Well, thanks so much. We've been talking with Dana Weiner about issues of child welfare and data and policy, and it's been a tremendous pleasure to have you with us here today. And we hope you have a good time at the Bronfenbrenner Center. Thanks so much for having me. And we hope the rest of you will join us on the next installment of our podcast series on doing translational research. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.